One of my very earliest memories of being in church, and it's really just kind of a, a fleeting snapshot, if you will, in my mind, is that of watching uh, the minister uh, ascend the stairs from the basement going up to the sanctuary in the, the uh, church into which I was uh, baptized and, and where uh, my family worshiped for quite some time. Uh, Sunday school was downstairs and the sanctuary was upstairs, I think much as uh, some of your own arrangement might be. But So Sunday school was first and after Sunday school was over there was this migration up to the sanctuary and for some reason in my mind's eye, I can still remember looking at me being down toward the bottom as a younger tyke and watching uh, the minister who was up ahead of me and he turned and I don't know who he was looking at, but I just remember him turning and looking back. And what, what stands out in my memory is, is his physical appearance and, and that, I'm sure that was what arrested me at the time. Uh, he was a tall man, but he was stooped and he w it wasn't just that he had bad posture. You could see that there was something uh, unnatural about the way that he carried himself. And the other th thing that was quite uh, no notable was the scarring on his face. It wasn't, it wasn't hideous such that you would look and say, oh, you know, don't want to look at that. But it was very, very pronounced. You, you didn't have to strain your eyes to see it. It was right there. Uh, and I'm, I'm sure I, I peppered my parents with endless questions about that. You know, what happened to the pastor? How, why, why is his face scarred? Why, did, why, is he, why does he walk that way? And over time, uh, they were able, they gave me to understand that, um, that before he came to be our pastor, he had been a missionary in Manchuria, China, for over 10 years gone out and with his family and helped uh, in the mission to plant churches in Manchuria. Uh, but at the outbreak of World War II, Manchuria was invaded and occupied by the Japanese. And our pastor saw this coming. I'm, I'm sure many people did. And he was able to get his family out of China. But as a pastor, he was convinced uh, and, and deeply committed to staying with the congregations that he was uh, helping to establish. So he remained behind and when the Japanese invaded, uh, he and lots of other people were arrested and put in uh, detention camps. The army officer in charge of the camp where he was interned uh, singled him out because well, he was from the West, of course, but also because he was a, a missionary and. Uh, representative of the Christian faith. And on a very regular basis, he would summon him uh, into his uh, office and ask him to swear an oath of allegiance to the emperor of Japan. And uh, our pastor, because that oath of allegiance required a, a specific acknowledgement that the emperor of Japan was a god, uh, our pastor refused to do that. Uh, as a consequence of which, he was, every time they would bring him in, every time he would refuse, and every time they would beat him severely. And they would confine him to a space for an extended period of time where he could not stand upright, could not stretch out his uh, long frame. 
And that was, uh, that was why he bore those scars, and that was why he walked that way. And I recall thinking, well, it must be a pretty dangerous thing to be a missionary. But it did not, it did not really implant itself on my consciousness that perhaps this could be part of the calling of following Christ. It did not impress myself uh, uh, on my consciousness at the time that this is actually part of the, the job description of being a Christ follower, the, the potential, the possibility that we might suffer for his name. First Peter, of course, is a, a letter written to people for whom that was a very uh, present reality. They had already experienced, as we know from the text, they'd already experienced some verbal abuse, no doubt some bullying. Uh, they, had been they were being reviled for their faith. There was the prospect of uh, greater danger to come. And so it's written, as we've noted, to help them to stand firm in the Christian faith, stand firm in the grace of God. And over these past several weeks, we've been looking at standing firm uh, from the perspective of uh, standing, standing firm in love, standing, standing firm, first of all, in hope. We've been born again to a living hope, and we stand firm in that. We stand firm in love, uh, which is a recurring theme throughout the letter. Last week, we looked at standing firm in righteous living, and this morning, we're going to look at standing firm in baptismal grace, because the the heart of the text that we're looking, we'll be looking at this morning is about uh, baptism. I was uh, rummaging around here off to, to my right uh, at one point, and, and I discovered uh, back in there, I discovered one of the uh, artifacts, the ancient artifacts of the Christian faith. There is a baptismal font back in there, along with the pulpit. Uh, and the... Uh, I know it's an authentic baptismal font because it has eight sides. All baptismal fonts that are authentic have, have eight sides. And if you're curious about why that should be, just uh, pay attention as we go through the reading of, of the scripture text. Let's see if I can move this along. Oops, didn't want to do that. Go back. There. Last week's text ended with uh, a quote from Psalm 34, in which uh, we were reminded that uh, we, are called, we are called to bless people that we might receive a blessing. And this, the, the uh, text continues with the theme of blessing, but in uh, an unexpected sort of way. So, Chapter 3, verse 13. Who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them or be intimidated, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this with gentleness and reverence, keeping a clear conscience, so that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Notice, suffering might be the will of God. 
And if you're, uh, it's much better to suffer for doing good than suffering for doing evil. Also, I uh, want to just uh, come back here. Says, uh, this translation says, anyone who asks you for a reason, the, uh, literally it is who asks you for a word, and in this context, it, what it actually means is an accounting. Anyone who, you give a defense to someone who asks you to account for this hope uh, that, that is within you. Remember that because we'll, we'll run against uh, that again in a minute. For Christ also so suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison, who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. In it, a few, that is, eight people, were saved through water. And that's why baptismal fonts have eight sides, because in the, develop, in the ancient formation of, of the Christian faith, uh, baptismal fonts have eight sides because in the ark, eight souls were saved from the flood. The flood being the waters, the waters of baptism bear up the ark, and those in the ark are saved, eight of them. So baptismal fonts are octagons. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers subject to him. Now, if, when we come in, into this next section, the, the flood is still on Peter's mind. The flood is going to be uh, in view here, as will the matter of giving an account. Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin, in order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there has already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood. They, through their baptism, like Noah's family, have been saved from the flood. The wicked are surprised that we don't join them in the same flood of wild living, and they slander you, literally blaspheme. They will give an account. Same phrase, you be ready to give an account. They will give an account to the one who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. And then he comes to the final section, which is an exhortation based on remembering baptism. It points to the life of the baptized. It points to the new life that is pointed to in baptism. And it also reminds us of our call to serve. The end of all things is near, therefore, 
be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. When you're reading along through an epistle and you come to a doxology that ends with amen, you know that that's the end of a section. One of the... uh, the powerful things about Peter's, sorry, leave this on here. First Peter is a very powerfully uh, written letter. It's uh, rhetorically powerful, if you will. There's a, there is something about the, the way Peter frames the message that goes beyond just communic- you know, passing along some propositions or uh, communicate, communicating some ideas to us, but he writes in such a way that uh, the rhetorical style brings some of these things home to our hearts and burns them into our minds if we are attentive to them. If we, if we take the time, instead of just rushing through them, and well, now I've read the text, but to take some time as you read to let the text sink in. There, there are several, there are a couple of moves if you will, that Peter makes throughout this letter to to do that for us, to help his burden of encouragement settle deep into our souls. Uh, One of those, one of the moves or or one of the the things that he does is throughout the letter he he is basing every section on some very carefully chosen portions of scripture so that in, in, at one level, 1 Peter is, is just an exposition of key texts in the Old Testament that in one way or another should uh, steal our hearts uh, that, and steal, uh, S-T-E-E-L, make, to make our hearts strong uh, against the prospect of persecution or hardship to, uh, to encourage us. So that all of the Old Testament texts that he draws on, he, he is able to uh, bring to our attention with their power to remind us of God's strength, of God's protection, and of God's purpose for his people, even in the midst of suffering. In, in our portion today, it's, it's not annotated. Perhaps if you, if you have a Bible or a, on your device, if you're able to look at the whole text, you might see an annotation. But... The first part, uh, the first part of, the, of this particular section is drawn from Isaiah chapter 8. And that he says, um, uh, he says, where he says not to be afraid in the, in the passage. He says, even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. That's verse 14. Do not fear what they fear or be intimidated. That's from Isaiah 18. In Isaiah 8, I'm sorry. In Isaiah 8, you're in that section right, uh, right after the Emmanuel prophecy, right after the promise where uh, Isaiah goes to King Ahaz and says, don't be afraid, the Lord will give you a sign. 
the virgin will conceive and bear a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel. What was going on? Well, King Ahaz and the rest of the kingdom of Judah were, uh, their knees were knocking. They were shaking in their boots because two kingdoms to the north, the kingdom of Israel, the king of Syria, had allied themselves against Judah. And Ahaz said, I don't have the, you know, I don't, I'm not able to stand up against these folks. And Isaiah comes to him and says, you know, don't fear, trust God. And then in chapter 8, after Ahaz has made it plain that he is, he's not going to trust God, the Lord speaks to Isaiah himself and says to Isaiah uh, not to fear, not to be intimidated. And then he goes on in, uh, that was Isaiah 8, 12, in, in verse 13, he says, instead, uh, in your heart, treat me as holy, regard me as holy, or sanctify me as Lord, you might say. And, uh, and I will be your sanctuary. Don't be afraid of what they fear. Uh, fear the Lord, and the Lord will be your sanctuary. So he, he takes... By, by those one-line quotations, he takes his readers back to Ahaz and Isaiah, where Isaiah says to Ahaz, don't be afraid, and then Ahaz won't take the advice to heart, but Isaiah does. Isaiah does. And the, the situation then, Peter says, is not uh, entirely unlike that. You have to decide who you're going to treat as holy who you're going to treat as the, uh, the people from whom you'll take your bearings. Take it from the Lord. Take your bearings from him, not from those who threaten you. And then, of course, the second Old Testament passage that uh, Peter calls to mind is the passage about the flood, the days of Noah. And that passage, we, we, I stopped to note that in, in the reading, but we can all, if we stop for a moment, we can all appreciate that, that the days of Noah must have been fairly threatening to Noah and his family. And even though the Bible does not specifically say so, just we all can imagine that as Noah is building this ark for a hundred years, in a time when, uh, as Genesis says, the the only imagination of people's hearts was only evil continually. Uh, evil had grown to such proportions that the Lord said, uh, I'm, I'm going to bring judgment, but Noah has found favor with me. Uh, one, of, one of the most uh, marked periods of evil and blasphemy and carousing and all of these other things, uh, that in, certainly in the history of the Bible, uh, here's Noah. He's building an ark for a hundred years. And you can imagine the, the kind of abuse that Noah and his family must have had to endure during that period. And, and that's what Peter is evoking for his readers. They are surrounded in a culture that is committed to these idolatrous practices. And, and Peter says specifically, they are surprised that you don't join them in the same flood of uh, wild living. So he, he takes them back to another time in history in the Bible, and he says, uh, here were folks facing terrible evil every day, 
but the Lord provided an ark and the Lord sent a flood and the, the waters of the flood carried the ark and, and dispensed with their, their adversaries, silenced their adversaries. They were saved. And in the same way, baptism saves you. The other, um, the other thing that Peter does to bring this home to our hearts is that he keeps cycling back to some uh, pivotal uh, exhortations. So uh, for the third time in, in our passage, we come to an exhortation to love one another deeply. You have that in chapter 1. You had that, uh, we had that last Sunday uh, in uh, the passage about submission. He goes through uh, submitting to the authorities, slaves submitting to their masters, wives submitting to their husbands, and then he says, finally, finally let everything be harmonious and love one another deeply. And now we come to the end of this particular section where he says the end of all things is near. Therefore, uh, be alert and sober-minded and above all, maintain constant love for one another since love covers a multitude of sins. This is the, at the end of this section, as we draw to the doxology, he reminds them again to love each other. So as you face persecution, what will help you? Well, you, you remain within the communion of the saints and you love each other deeply. And that will, that, that will be what helps to strengthen you because in your love for one another, God will use that to strengthen your, your courage mutually. So there's, there's that uh, recurring, he introduces it, he keeps coming back around to it, and you, you kind of, uh, and he does it in such a way that it doesn't seem contrived. He said, here we are again. Another thing that he does, though, is to repeat the same idea, but sometimes in a contrastive way. And I hope you've picked up on that as we talked about accounting. We are not to be afraid. Instead, we are to be ready uh, to give a defense when those out there who are not Christians ask us for an accounting of the hope with, that is within us. We were born again to a living hope. We hope that some folks out there recognize it. And some may recognize it and find it offensive or find it silly or whatever. And they say, what is this hope you have? Where does that come from? What's the history of that? Both in, in terms of your faith and your own personal life. I'd, li I'd like to hear an accounting of that. I'd like to know uh, where the bottom line of that comes from. So we are, be, we are to be ready to give an accounting to those who demand one from us in opposition. And then as he gets to the end of that passage and talks about those who blaspheme us, who revile us, he says uh, they are going to have to give an accounting to the one who is ready. We're to be ready to give an account. God is ready, God is ready to judge those who revile the faith, and he will demand accounting, an accounting from them. So it's, the, the, the setting is very different for us and for the opposition at the judgment day, but what, what ties the two together is readiness. God is ready, we're to be ready. Uh, and how, 
How does our accounting fit into that? Those who stand before God uh, to give an account, it's important that they have heard Christians give an account. And, and in fact, if, uh, if we give an accounting, God may use that to bring them into the fellowship of the faith so that they can stand before God with confidence in the last day rather than giving an accounting of, uh, of a life of uh, rebellion against God. So that our accounting is God's way of preparing uh, and uh, being gracious to the rest of the world so that they can give an account on the last day with joy and not with grief. Our giving an answer is tremendously important to our non-Christian neighbors uh, to prepare them for the day of judgment. On, on the day of judgment, our confidence in, will be deeply related to our baptism. We are to give our account, uh, keeping a clear conscience. We're not to, we're not to be unchristian in, when we give an, an account to non-Christians. We are to give our account with a good conscience. And good conscience, as he says, goes to our baptism. Baptism saves you, not through the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge. That word can also be translated as a plea. Either way, it comes to the same thing. The pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So that one of the significances of baptism is that uh, through faith in Christ, uh, the waters of baptism are to us an assurance that our consciences are cleansed and that when we stand before God on the last day, uh, we will stand before God with a, a conscience that is free uh, from self-condemnation, not because that's who we are, but because that's who we are in Christ. As the baptized of, of God as part of the assembly of the baptized, uh, we are not only given a clear conscience, but we are given gifts. All who are baptized uh, are baptized into the one spirit. All, who, are all who, who go through the waters of baptism are given gifts by the spirit who indwells us. And those, those gifts are the means by which we minister to one another this grace that we are to stand firm in. The closing of the letter is, this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. Uh, we are enabled to stand firm in it in that we, uh, we are given the privilege of uh, ministering it to one another. And that, that is why the communion of saints is so important. Grace is not something that you can go shopping for. Grace is not something uh, that's part of the consumer things on offer in Western society. Uh, there is not a price that you can pay to go in and say, oh, I'd like some grace today. The only, the only way you share in the manifold grace of God is in the fellowship of the baptized and in sharing your gift with others and receiving their gift uh, so that we might persevere unto everlasting life. Peter's list of the the gifts is pretty short. There are, some, there are some who speak, there are some who serve, and those are not mutually exclusive by any stretch of the imagination. But he just reminds us that uh, a word of encouragement, 
The word of truth based in, uh, in scripture brings great encouragement, helps us to stand firm. And demonstrations of Christ's love also are ways that help us to stand firm in the faith. Some people are, some people are set aside uh, to oversee the, the ministry of service. We're all called to serve. We all have a gift. We all have a ministry. Everyone who is baptized has a gift and a ministry, a service to perform. And some are called uh, to see that that happens, to see that uh, that can be uh, coordinated. The, the, deacons, the deacons originated as a ministry of justice because in the early church, there were, well, in the Jerusalem church, the first day there were 3,000 converts, and that number kept growing and growing and growing, and there were lots of widows, and the, some of the widows were being overlooked, and there was apparently some ethnic, uh, or there was the appearance anyway that there was some ethnic issue, that some people were being overlooked because they were of the wrong tribe, and so the apostles uh, when they were, when this need was pointed out to them, said, well, well, we'll choose, we'll choose, or you can choose. You can choose seven, seven people that you respect, uh, and we'll, we'll put them in charge to see that as the saints minister that this justice issue will, will be corrected. Um, seven Seven people for a church of thousands and thousands. That was how many deacons they needed. We, we, have, uh, we have about 130 members and, and 12 deacons. If you add in the elders, there's, uh, there's, there are more deacons and elders than you need for a quorum for a congregational meeting. Interesting to ask, you know, how, how many people do you need to, to see that uh, ministry takes place in a, a congregation of a little over 100? Something to think about, but not a problem. Not a problem. I'm not chiding you for anything. I'm just pointing out that uh, sometimes when you elect all these folks, you say, well, now, now ministry is being done. We elected them, and they're doing the ministry. Their role is to help you do the ministry. And so in just a moment, we're going to bring uh, Wendy, Joe, and Blaine up, and we're going to ordain and install them to be deacons. And I hope that as we reflected on our baptism, uh, I hope as we think about what it means to be church leaders in a culture that is increasingly opposed to Christianity, that you'll be glad and grateful that there are people who are willing to help, help us in this way, and that you will remember them but that you'll look to them to help you find out how can I help? How can I use my gift? Lord, write these words on our hearts. We are so grateful for the encouragement of the scriptures. We are so grateful for the communion of saints. We are so grateful that Christ has risen and is over all those powers and authorities that might harm us and that in him we are set free to do good no matter what your will may be for us with respect to our security in this life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.